Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 today. Follow along. The words will be on the screen as well. Uh, Verse 1, I finished last week with verse 1, and I'm going to start this week with verse 1 because it links what came um, before and it links what comes after. So the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, my brothers and my sisters to this church, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yoidia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Very familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of us. Um, This morning, I could take this in uh, multiple directions, but I really want to target and zone Uh, zero in on one word today and allow the text to sort of speak to us from this perspective, and that is the word anxious. (laughs) Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety. Today we're going to talk about anxiety, and I'm going to link it with depression. Uh, Some of you maybe are anxious because there's no coffee at the back. (laughs) Some of you may be anxious because you already had three before you came here. (laughs) Nonetheless, today we're going to talk about anxiety and depression. The word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, literally means, the word anxious means to be pulled apart. That's what the word means, to be pulled apart. If anyone here this morning knows what it feels like to be in pieces, to be scattered, mind swirling in a a hundred or even a thousand directions, feeling fragmented, chaotic, like Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall and couldn't be put back together again. You know what the Apostle Paul means by anxious, if you have ever felt that way. And those in particular who struggle with depression are usually left with the question, what's the matter with me? Why, why am I broken with no fix? Uh, or as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? He was speaking about himself. Why? When we're depressed or sad or downcast or anxious, when we lack joy, we often aren't sure why. Anxiety and depression often leave us feeling stuck with no solution and you don't know what's the matter. Now, if you're uh, at all human, like, like I am, and I trust that you are like me, just as I am like you, uh, you've probably had to deal with, maybe even on a daily basis, this wild mental beast we call anxiety and possibly his evil twin, depression. Likely, for all of us in the room, the fight for joy and peace is a daily struggle to one degree or another. Some struggle immensely, some a little. But Proverbs 12, verse 25 says this, anxiety in a, in a man's heart, in a, in a person's heart, anxiety weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. 
So if you identify with that struggle, a heavy heart, anxiety, depression, whatever the case may be for you today, whatever degree, if you feel these things, then I trust that today's text, Philippians 4, 1 through 7, as we unpack it a little bit, will be a good word for you. (laughs) We want this to be a good word, one that will lift you up, and maybe even you'll feel uh, a little bit more glad when you leave today. So let's get into it. I want to talk, first of all, uh, about uh, the anxious age that we, that we live in, sort of as a backdrop to the rest of the text. As I've already said, anxiety is something that impacts pretty much everyone at some level, and depression is something that affects many people as well. For some, the struggle with these is minor. For others, these are daily struggles that constantly beat you down and are often debilitating. So anxiety and depression are not new problems. They are part of the human condition, but our current cultural um, temperature or the waters that we find each, uh, ourselves in that you and I now deal with, uh, there is an increasing amount of new challenges around these issues. If you aren't directly affected by them in a severe way, you still feel these things from time to time or you know of others who do. And the chances are that one of these people that are affected by it, if it's not you, is a, is a close friend or a co-worker, a brother, a sister, a parent, a neighbor, one of your own children, maybe your spouse who is struggling. So in 2010, um, IMS Health Report recorded that 253 million prescriptions were written for, for antidepressants in the, in the United States. <clears throat> The population of the United States is just over 300 million, 253 million prescriptions. And the rate of adolescents and young adults dying of suicide has reached its highest level in nearly two decades, according to a report published in the Journal of of American Medical Association in June of this year. In fact, in in 2017, there were 47% more suicides among people aged 15 to 19 than in the year 2000. So in 17 years, that number has increased by almost 50%. And it it is the second leading cause of death in teenagers. Second leading cause of death, suicide. So anxiety disorders, which play into this a lot, now affect... When you, when now, let's start at the grassroots level. Anxiety disorders now affect 25.1% of children between age 13 to 18. Um, and research shows that untreated children with anxiety disorders are at higher risk to perform poorly in school, to miss out on important social experiences, and to engage in substance abuse. So, so the ball, the snowball is rolling down the hill and it's getting bigger and it's going faster. Now there's many factors contributing to this rise, including, I would say, uh, this, <laughs> social media, uh, constant inundation on our phones, tablets, televisions, uh, and all of the issues related to that. But many things can cause anxiety in our lives. In fact, uh, Marcy and I had a conversation with a couple last night where we talked about when life used to be simpler. (laughs) Things have gotten so busy and so complex and so crazy that it's just hard at times to manage and to cope. 
but we worry about all manner of things. We worry about work. We worry about <clears throat> the coffee machine that <laughs> doesn't work. Uh, we worry about um, <clears throat> we worry about the direction of our culture. Concerned about that we, and our children. We worry about our our family, our spouse, our siblings. We worry about what people think of us. We worry about our future. We worry about our church. And it's likely that the situation at Philippi between these two women who were fighting was the cause of great anxiety for the church and for the apostle himself. In fact, I would say this, unresolved conflict. Um, Paul said, let your reasonableness, other translations say gentleness, be, no, be made evident to all. When people are unreasonable... <laughs> when they are not gentle, when there is conflict in our interpersonal relationships, whether in our families or in the church, it just causes anxiety. Some people's stress level goes through the roof when they cannot resolve conflict and they get stuck there and then they go, what's the point? Why try? Why even try? So this is likely why Paul is encouraging this church, do not be anxious. Um, they and he were being torn apart. That's what the word means. Don't be anxious. Don't be fragmented. Don't be torn apart. But however it comes, anxiety mainly impacts our mental life. We worry about the worst-case scenario in any given situation. Anxiety is future-oriented. We think. We overthink. It's all about what could happen, not what is happening often. Uh, depression, on the other hand, impacts our emotional life. And I'm going to talk about what emotion means biblically. We, we feel regrets and sadness about things that could have been maybe in our past, or we feel hopeless about the future. The result of anxiety and depression, mental, emotional state that we live in, is that we walk through life with no joy or peace. Anxiety is the enemy of peace. Anxiety means to be pulled apart, but peace literally means, that's why Paul talks about peace in this, pa in this passage here, peace means to be made whole or complete, to be put back together again, but the problem was Humpty Dumpty couldn't be put back together again by all the king's men. <laughs> depression, on the other hand, is the enemy of joy. Anxiety, peace, depression, joy. Some of us don't even realize this is what we're struggling with, but we are irritable. We avoid relationships. We, we constantly feel tired. We feel numb or short of breath. For those who really struggle with deep depression or crushing anxiety, words often fail to describe the feelings. All we can do is speak in metaphor. I feel like I'm slogging through a swamp. I feel like I'm walking in a thick fog. I feel gray or blue all the time. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Probably one of the greatest <laughs> orators, um, preachers uh, that really, I think, ever lived. Uh, he's right up there. Charles Spurgeon dealt with debilitating depression. It affected him severely to the point of being bedridden at times. Uh, the mind, he said, can descend far lower than the body. For the mind, there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. That's what Spurgeon wrote. 
So this is a little bit of our culture and what we're dealing with, but let's talk about our common struggle with anxiety and depression. As much as we're aware of the problem and we know it's getting bigger, we would even admit that anxiety or depression are experiences that are common to all people in the church, but in the church we often lack understanding and compassion to those who are struggling in these ways. Uh, the result is we often become like Job's friends, <laughs> poor counselors to those who are depressed and anxious, often heaping the extra weight of guilt into their already heavy shoulders. Uh, some of us might hear Philippians 4, verse 6, and say, See, I told you so. The apostle Paul says to rejoice only and do not be anxious. So just do it. Get over it. Be, don't be anxious. Be full of joy. But how we communicate with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, it really matters. Uh, generally speaking, a common reaction when we hear about a fellow Christian who is struggling with depression or anxiety is that we're a bit shocked and we go, what? Like, they're struggling? Or they are struggling? We say this behind their back, but we do nothing, although to those who are closest to us, we say other things up front to their face, to our kids, our spouse, stop worrying. What's the matter? Just get over it. You know, with eyes rolled, frustrated tone. You know what that does to people? It actually makes them worry more. Because now when, I've, when I feel like I have upset you or disappointed you, I can't live up to the expectation you have of me. I worry more. And yet we try to fix each other or the problem instead of simply offering a listening ear, some understanding, a prayer. Because sometimes there just are no solutions and there are no fixes. It's hard for people like me to deal with. There's got to be a solution to this problem. Maybe some of us get the listening part down, but we don't really understand the person's sadness or anxiety. We don't have compassion for them, and we tell them essentially just get over it. But here's what you need to know about people who are being crushed by depression or anxiety and overwhelmed by it. They don't know how to just get over it. They don't know what it means to pull it together. Their soul is in turmoil, and they probably don't even know why. What they need first from God's people is compassion, a response like the Apostle Paul wrote about here, which we're going to get to in a minute as we back up all the way to verse 1. And this is how Paul speaks. His tone is not, just stop being anxious already, people. Be joyful for crying out loud. What's the matter with you? Here's why we shouldn't read Paul's words with that tone. He's in jail when he writes this letter. He's a prisoner in a Roman prison, which is probably a few steps down from our modern prisons. He, he understands what it means to suffer, to be isolated, to be lonely, to be discouraged. And while in this prison, he experiences, he himself experiences anxiety. So earlier in the letter, chapter, how we've divided it, chapter 2, verse 28, he wrote that he wanted to send Epaphrodites to visit this church and listen to the reason he gives. He said, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. The great apostle, a little bit of anxiety. He's in prison, 
struggling not to be anxious about this church. By sending Epaphroditus, he's hoping to experience less anxiety. And so listen again to Paul's tone at the beginning of chapter 4. This is how he starts. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters whom I love... Did you get that? (laughs) Whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, my beloved. Paul speaks with such tenderness and love and compassion. So his words to us about joy and anxiety should not be heard as get it together kind of language. Rather, they're an expression of his desire to see this church become the kind of people who are marked more and more by joy and peace. The very things that anxiety and depression rob us of so that they can stand firm in their faith. They come from a man who understands the experience of anxiety. Yes, they are a command, but they are a command with love. He's speaking truth, but he's doing it in love. Very gracious. I mean, isn't the reason we don't want to admit that we get anxious or depressed is because we think that other people will not understand? But brothers and sisters, this, because this is a common struggle, we shouldn't be surprised when another Christian tells us that they're anxious or struggling with joy. And it's a heavy world uh, out there and in here, and sometimes our fellow Christians feel the heaviness deeply for a whole host of reasons. Now, if you're not convinced, very quickly, I want to give you a short list of Bible characters who struggled and wrestled with anxiety and depression. We'll talk about a couple of them today. Well, one of them today. So there was King David. There was Elijah. Naomi. Job. Martha. Gideon. Jeremiah. And Paul. It's a pretty good list, eh? (laughs) They all struggled with anxiety and depression from time to time. Uh... David said in Psalm 42 that his soul was cast down and his spirit was in turmoil. How, many, how about other famous Christians outside the Bible? I've already talked about Charles Spurgeon, severe depression. William Coper, Randy Elkhorn. These are spiritual giants in our modern day. And there are many factors, both physical and spiritual, behind depression and anxiety. So we need to walk with understanding and with grace for those who struggle, seeking to learn and to listen. But let's talk about next about some of the common uh, ways that we deal with anxiety and depression, which really are pitfalls that we encounter when trying to find maybe some direction or solutions to lacking joy and being anxious. And then, and then we're going to finish today by some of the practices that Paul gives us that will help in this area. And I say some, just a few. <laughs> the first um, common way of dealing with this, which is a pitfall, is hyper-spiritualizing. The hyper-spiritual person says, all you have to do is pray and your anxiety should go away. You lack faith. You don't need to look at your lifestyle or other spiritual practices, and you don't need to think about how your body plays a role in anxiety and depression. Uh, When the hyper-spiritual person prays about their ailment and doesn't receive an immediate answer, they begin to doubt or heap guilt and shame upon themselves 
and we can do that with one another. To the hyper-spiritual, the answer is always sin and nothing else. Now, don't mishear me. (laughs) This is a very loaded topic in a very short time. You may be anxious because of sin. Uh, in fact, I, like I know somebody well who for a long time, uh, long-term disability, anxiety, depression, had people eating out of his hand and the whole time he was having an affair on his wife. Yeah, he was depressed. Yeah, he was anxious and there was a good reason for it. You, you may be failing to trust God. But the hyper-spiritual person refuses to look at other possibilities. They essentially are Gnostics who believe the soul part of the person is all that matters and that the body doesn't really matter. But this is a denial of God's very being and his teaching on the importance of the body and how our bodies affect our whole being. So it is a very real possibility that some of us who are struggling with anxiety and depression may have something medically wrong and we may need to consult with a medical doctor Uh, Listen to me. This is not an unspiritual thing to do. Because God gave you a body. (laughs) And sickness in your body will impact how you think and how you feel. The next way that pitfall we can... uh, fall into here is the extreme opposite, and that is naturalizing everything. We call this a naturalizing response. The naturalist will say, all all I need, all you need is a pill. I don't need to change anything in my lifestyle. I don't need to examine what's going on uh, or spend time in prayer or studying the scriptures or being in community. The naturalist believes that it can only be chemicals in the brain and nothing spiritual could possibly be the problem. The naturalist sees no need to consult with a pastor, a counselor, or to go through a course like Freedom Session because they just need a prescription so they can get on with life. What both of these extremes have in common is that they're interested in a quick fix. Neither the hyper-spiritual or the naturalist is interested in making lifestyle changes, dealing with, uh, with unhealthy or sinful patterns of thought and behavior and not really getting to the root of problems medically or emotionally or psychologically or spiritually. So as you can probably guess, the best response is a holistic response where we can seek to address the body, the soul, and the spirit. Because the Bible affirms that we are tripartite. (laughs) Big word, that means that we're made up of three things. Our bodies, our souls, which our soul is the seat of our emotions. It's our heart and our mind, how we think and how we feel. That's our soul. And then there's that spiritual part of us that without Christ is dead and needs to be revived by the work of his son, Jesus. Finished work on the cross who came to bring us life spiritually. Those are the three things. By the way, the word soul in scripture is a word that is pronounced this way, suke. Does anybody know where, what word we might get from suke? Psyche. <laughs> psyche. Our psyche, our mind, our heart, our emotions, that is soul. As a little bit of trivia, seeing as we're on to words, spirit is the word pneuma. 
body, soul, spirit. Pneuma means breath or wind. So that makes sense when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit that he would give. It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. It's a bit of a mystery, the Spirit of God. But our spirit literally is also pneuma. It means breath or wind. So here's a bit of trivia for me, Back for you. Back in the day when people would sneeze, hachoo, <laughs> people would say, bless you or God bless you. You know why? Because they literally thought that if all of your breath left your body at one time, you were in trouble spiritually. You lost your spirit. Bit of a, I love those old, where those old sayings come from. Saved by the bell. Look that one up. I won't talk about it right now. Okay, so King David in Psalm 31 said this, you have known, God, the distress of my soul. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. David's darkness of soul led to his body wasting away. And a Christian view of a human being is that our, our body, our soul, and our spirit are so interconnected that while being distinct, they are also inseparable. And what happens in the soul and the spirit will impact the body. What happens in the body will impact the soul and the spirit. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he said, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. David talked about body and soul. Uh, Paul, body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay, biblical example, Elijah. How many of you heard of that guy? All right, so Elijah uh, had this uh, amazing spiritual experience where he confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And then, of course, after the contest where the real God shows up, is revealed, sends fire from heaven to consume the, the sacrifices in the water when the prophets of Baal were unable to do so. Uh, even after that, most of the people didn't repent. In fact, they dug their heels in and Queen Jezebel was the worst. And she threatened Elijah's life. I will kill you. And Elijah fled fearfully into the wilderness. He was discouraged. He was depressed. He was afraid, anxious. And scripture says he wanted to die. He lay down under a tree and hoped to die. It was a very low point for him after a very high spiritual experience. So he traveled to Mount Sinai, to the place where Moses met with God, looking, for, looking to return to a place of spiritual power in his life. But along the way, you know what Elijah really needed first? He needed to sleep. He was exhausted. And after that experience, when he fled for his life, he ran for miles and miles and miles. This guy just, just tired in every way, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And he needed to sleep. And you know what else he needed first before he could meet with God and be healed? He needed food. So terribly unspiritual for an angel to show up with food, hey? There's a good ministry around food, you know? in the church. I'm just, just saying. Um, two separate times, Elijah was so exhausted, he fell asleep and an angel was sent to tap him on the shoulder to wake him up to give him something good to eat to strengthen him because he was so depressed. 
But that wasn't all Elijah needed to, to, in his life. He also needed to meet with God. When he arrived at Mount Sinai, the Lord asked him why he was there. And he expected some big display of power from God like he had seen on Mount Carmel. But God did just the opposite in his life because it's what he needed. And he spoke to him in a silent whisper to bring calm to his troubled soul. The point is, Elijah's physical needs, his soul needs, his spiritual needs related to his depression and his anxiety. So as we look at Paul's teaching from Philippians 4, we need to be aware of how it fits into a holistic approach. Paul was not a medical doctor. I am not a medical doctor, so it is possible that you need to see a medical doctor about your anxiety and depression. Perhaps like Elijah, the most spiritual thing you can do is to eat properly. Because when you have Coke and chips and chocolate and nothing else, that might be a problem. Kind of like the things I tend to gravitate to. And when you don't do those things, you don't get a very good night's sleep. And if you're really, really anxious at the end of the day, and you realize that you just drank six triple espressos to keep going, that might be a problem too. I'm just saying, we need a holistic approach. So here are some Christian practices for anxiety and depression. Now, I, I want to say some solutions, okay? Some. And these are spiritual practices. I am not a doctor. Go see your doctor if you're depressed or anxious. Please, go. But, but acting in one way, spiritually, will certainly impact your emotions and your body, okay? And so these are just some. We, we don't have time to deal on all myriad of things that we can do. But the first thing that I want to say is that the, I use the word intentionally when I say practices. These are things that we do. We need to practice because practice makes progress. It's a cool... Uh, so Pastor Chris Ross preached this sermon last week in, in Chilliwack. Excellent sermon. I'm borrowing heavily from it. <laughs> because it was so good. We studied it together, and he wrote a great sermon. But he said his, one of his kids comes home from school, and his teacher says, ah, practice doesn't make perfect, but it does make progress. Okay? So these are the things that we need to do over and over and over and over and over again in our life so that it'll help us with anxiety, so that we can have more peace, and these things, because Paul ends, you see, this whole section, verse 9, we only read to verse 7. Next week, we're going to look at even more practices in verses 8 and 9, but he ends the whole thing by saying, put these into practice. Practice. Anybody see uh, an uh, interview that uh, Alan Iverson, uh, you know, NBA Hall of Famer, gave a while back in a post-game interview? <laughs> I got to see Kyle over there. I'm sure you've seen Iverson, right? He was, getting, he was getting harassed by the media because he had been missing some practices, right? So he's injured. And yet he, want, he wanted everybody to realize he's still the star of the show, right? Like, it's all about the game. I listened to the interview last night. You, you can YouTube it. Two minutes and 22 seconds. I, this is very uncanny. Two minutes and 22 seconds. He repeated the word practice 22 times. And we're talking about practice. 
She's talking about practice. We're talking about practice. What are we really talking about here? It's just practice. It's just practice. He's all upset. So this morning, we're talking about practice, okay? We're talking about practice. If we want to, if we want to, uh, to thrive in this, uh, I'm not going to say game, but if we want to thrive in life, we got to put some things into practice. You do them over and over, not just occasionally, not just when you feel like it or it might fit into your schedule. It's something that shapes the schedule. It shapes us. We do it regularly. It becomes a rhythm. And so if we are dealing with anxiety and depression and we're very sporadic or irregular in time spent spiritually, maybe in prayer or reading the Word or being around other people, uh, then I think we have misheard what God's Word is to us today. So the first thing we need to do is practice rejoicing. Practice rejoicing. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, in case you missed it, Paul said, rejoice. But how? How do we get our hearts to rejoice when we're struggling just to believe and to feel anything? It seems too simplistic to say just rejoice when we don't feel like rejoicing. I'm depressed. I can't rejoice. I want to, but I can't. How can you tell me to rejoice when I can't rejoice? Notice that Paul doesn't say, now this is important. He tells us actually what to rejoice in. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. If that was the case, we're in trouble. Because when life is good, we're up. When life is difficult, when suffering comes that we talked about, then we're down. And if we rejoice when things are going well and when they're not, we don't rejoice, we're going to stay down. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. That's key. Your circumstances might be terrible. Perhaps they're not terrible, but they will change. <laughs> if you... If you pin your joy on your circumstances, they're gonna, your joy will rise and fall according to what happens to you. Paul is saying, pour your joy into Jesus and Jesus will pour his joy into you. Remember this, no one can take Jesus from you. You can't. Scripture is firm on the fact that no one can take you out of the hand of God. Wow. Remember that Jesus doesn't change. Our circumstances, our, our life events, they change, but Jesus is the same yesterday as he is today as he will be tomorrow. True north, steady, does not change. Scripture tells us that nothing can separate us from his love. Scripture tells us that he is good all the time. And so when we rejoice, we need to rejoice in the Lord, not in anything else. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to walk around with a smile all day long. Uh, again, it, you could very well be going through something very difficult at this very moment. But joy in Jesus is the anchor deep in your soul that holds you in those times of difficulty, especially in the times of difficulty. The prophet Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
But how can I express this joy? What is a practice that I can do that will help me rejoice in Jesus and not my circumstances? The first way Paul said is to rejoice in song. Sometimes it means that you have to force that that CD or that cassette. Does anybody still have cassettes? Eight, any eight tracks out there? Any old cars? Any vintage guys? <laughs> Plug your phone into your stereo. Whatever you need to do, okay? And just start putting on some music, some songs, and just start singing along. Or come here. Because we have fantastic worship leaders, uh, but worship isn't limited to song, but it's why we sing together. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's what gives us some hope again and some ability to walk with a lighter step, right? To be around people, to not isolate. It's what Paul says, do not neglect the habit of meeting together, the habit, the practice, the regular we got to be there to sing together, to be together, to practice these things together so that we can stand firm on our faith. Amen? Can I get a witness out there? Rejoice in song. So Paul expressed his joy in Christ in the middle of very difficult circumstances. So he's writing a letter to this church in Philippi, and he's in a Roman prison. But he's thinking back, I'm sure, to when he first visited Philippi, and he got himself into trouble like he always did. And if he wasn't being severely beaten or had, you know, you know, being put under a rock pile one stone at a time, he was in prison. So he was in prison in Philippi. Listen to what Acts 16 says, 23 to 35. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, means they got not just a good licking, they were beaten. threw them into prison. Now, I'd say life was difficult at this point for Paul. Silas? Uh, They threw him in prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. So this guy, in order to keep him safely, received his order. He put him in the inner prison, hardcore area, and fastened their feet in the stocks. They were like tied down by the ankles. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. And if we continued the story, like, man, God shook that place, and he released them, and people were saved. They made a conscious decision to sing. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> so when I said, uh, the prophet Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is a strength, there's a little jingle that comes to my mind. It's like, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And you just love those kind of little tunes. So I want you to leave here just singing that, okay? I'm just gonna, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. What does it say next? Praise him too. <laughs> Whatever. Enough of that. I'm being recorded. Uh, Paul and Silas, uh, yeah, anyway, they rejoiced by singing. For the Hebrew, the follower of God in the Old Testament and many of them going into the New Testament until Greeks started believing as well, one of the most natural ways of expressing joy was through song. In fact, in Psalm 105, verse 4, 
God, God tells us that after Israel was delivered, they crossed through the Red Sea coming out of Egypt to the Promised Land. It says, so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. I think God sang over them. Scripture tells us that God actually sings over us. Isn't that amazing? The people sang as they were being delivered. Psalm 149, 1-3, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Mennonites, did you hear that? It says, let them praise his name with dancing. It means that, you know, when Cecily comes back up here and Carson and Dan, see, we even have some drums this morning. There's no reason why we can't dance. Amen? Move your feet a little. Shake it. You can do it. I know you can. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and the lyre. So here's the thing. If you don't know how to make a melody, just dance. It's, it's all good. All right. Uh, that was a bit of a joke, okay? You're supposed to still sing, even though you... Never mind. Uh, we need to practice rejoicing in Jesus through song. Practice, secondly, Paul wrote in this text, the presence of God. Practice his presence. Paul goes on to say, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, now it may not be blatantly, uh, or he doesn't call it a practice, but uh, the Lord being at hand. Some, some people interpret that to mean that you know, don't worry about anything because the Lord is really near and his second coming is, is imminent. So you don't have to, you know, you're only going to struggle for a little while longer. Just get through life and Jesus will come back. And then others are saying, no, no, no. Um, it talks more about God's loving presence with us. The Lord is near. He's at hand now. And we need to do things, practice certain things in order to experience his nearness with us. It is possible that Paul leaves it deliberately vague because he wants his audience to be encouraged with both realities. Jesus is with you now, and he's going to return. He's coming again. Why don't we just hang our hat on both of those realities, and then we're good. Paul, Paul's encouragement here is different from Peter in the way he uh, tells us to deal with anxiety. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, he wrote, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter emphasized God's transcendence. He's a big God. He, he has a mighty hand. He can shoulder your burdens, and that's what Jesus said about himself. Come to me, you who are burdened and wearied, and I will give you rest. You can, you can put it on me. I've got big shoulders. But, but Paul encourages us with a different truth. Instead of emphasizing God's transcendence, which is true, he instead encourages us with God's imminence. He's close. Jesus is near to you. You are not alone. You are never alone. If you're a Christian, you're never alone. Jacob, when he ran away from his brother Esau, fell asleep one night laid his head on a rock for a pillow. That could have been part of his problem. <laughs> but anyway, Jacob, after he went to sleep, he had a dream. 
about a ladder to heaven. And for all the Led Zeppelin fans, this was the original Stairway to Heaven. So when he woke up from, when he woke up from his dream, Jacob realized that God's presence was much closer to him than he realized. You see, his problem was not that God was not there. His problem was that he was unaware of just how close God was. So what's a way to practice, again, being more aware of God's presence? First of all, Paul talks about solitude. One of the most underpracticed spiritual disciplines today for cultivating an awareness of the presence of God is solitude. Not just Solitude isn't just being alone, everybody get away from me. But it's, being, it's removing yourself from the noise and the crowd to spend intentional time, intentional time with Jesus. Jesus regularly practiced solitude so he could spend time with his heavenly Father, and that enabled him then to spend time with the crowds, ministering to them. So one of the questions you might want to ask if you're struggling with darkness and anxiety is, am I in the practice of meeting alone with Jesus uh, regularly. Dallas Willard, I quoted him last week as well. He said, solitude frees us. The normal course of day-to-day human interaction locks us into patterns of feeling, thought, and action that are geared to a world set against God. So solitude frees us to be with God, to experience his presence and his nearness to us. Psalm 46, David wrote, Be still and know that I am God. Paul said, The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. It was a God-ordained moment in our prayer time before the service today. And our leader heard the voice of God on her way to prayer today. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. It's not proud. Um, My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. See, sometimes we get ourselves into trouble when we try to do too much. (laughs) And we try to overthink it. He said, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Solitude, quiet. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within, within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Practice solitude. We're going to end with this one. We need to practice thankful prayer. And Paul um, says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if you're a foodie like me, and you like watching shows like, you know, Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, or Chopped, or You Gotta Eat Here, or Master Chef, or any of those things, often on these shows when, you know, Guy Fieri or whatever goes to a restaurant, and he asks, so what are you putting in there? And then they put all these things in, and then this one, what is that? Can't tell you. Can't tell you, that's the secret sauce. That's the ingredient that I will never tell you. Why? Because it is the ingredient that takes that recipe to to the next level. And when Paul says, in your prayers, 
if you incorporate thanksgiving, that is what will take it to the next level. It's the secret sauce. We have to, by an act of the will, if necessary, make our prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. And the promise of God is that peace will follow. Peace that only Jesus can give. A lot of people today practice what's called mindfulness, and there's all kinds of other practices that go with it. Yoga, transcendental transcendental meditation, all these things. And Time Magazine just released a full issue of uh, an, an issue called The Science of Happy. Over a dozen articles dealing with scientific research that has found that practices like mindfulness and gratitude, they name gratitude, have a massive effect on people's happiness levels. But you know what? Here's the thing. Those are all well and they're all good, but they're incomplete because if mindfulness doesn't lead us to dwell on the truth of God's word and of Jesus, it's incomplete. If we're just grateful, and it's good to thank people and to be grateful for what they do for us, but it's just a thank you void of the one that really matters. And here we have a promise from Paul of true peace by Christ that who himself will guard us. He's in prison. He's being guarded by a Roman soldier 24-7. And he says, you know what? This is what Jesus does for us when we approach him in these ways. By rejoicing, by living a life of solitude and experiencing his nearness to us, and by being thankful, Christ himself is there guarding us, making sure we're safe. And when we thank God, he gets the glory, and we get peace. Pastor Chris said, prayer is the kindling for the flame of joy, and thankfulness is the wind that fans the flame into a mighty fire. I love that. Uh, one of the most influential professors that I had in Bible college was Henry Hildebrand, Dr. Henry Hildebrand, who started the school. I had the privilege in my final year, which was also his, or was it my third year, but his final year. He was already chancellor at that point, and he would teach one course a year, and it was Romans. And I got the very last class on Romans that he taught. Every class he would open up his Bible to the book of Romans and then he would pray. He would say, let us pray. I don't have a deep voice like Henry Hildebrand did. And he'd say, our most gracious, loving, heavenly Father. And he literally would stop there and he would begin to weep every class. And then he would say, we thank thee. We thank thee. And he would go on to list all of the things for which he was so thankful, starting with the very word of God that was in his hand. So listen, these are just a few of the practices that Paul gives us to help us when we reach levels of anxiety and depression that can be overwhelming. Just a few. Uh, another quick story to close. Oh, man, we're getting on with time. 
How many of you know Tyler and Cheryl Schultz? Well, proud mom and dad are here today. Yeah, Cecily, come on up. Come and join me. I'm, I'm winding it up. i got to close. If you're on stage, I'll, I'll land the plane a little faster maybe. So they were in Burundi. They were, they're back now. And uh, Cheryl's, they came back because Cheryl's father just passed away a couple of weeks ago. And they were glad they had a chance to be with him for a few months, his final months. But while they were in Burundi, there was incredible unrest in the country, and they literally could be walking or driving through the neighborhood, and they could hear these rocket-propelled grenades and other explosives going off behind walls near their neighborhood. And so when this happened, Tyler said the team would gather, and they would read Philippians 4, 1 through 9, and they would begin to pray and rejoice and give thanks. They called it Rejoice, Pray, Give Thanks, RPG for Rocket Propelled Grenade. (laughs) RPG. So the next time the evil one or life or whatever launches an RPG your way, take time to rejoice. Take time to pray, to be alone with God, and take time to be grateful, to give thanks. Lord, you're so good. And I am so thankful for the word you give us that we can study in peace and in freedom in this country. Thank you for the gifts that you lavish upon your church. Thank you for everybody seated in front of me people that I love, even as Paul loved those in his churches. Thank you that we can gather today. Thank you for food. Thank you for rest. Thank you for your provisions. Thank you, Lord, for my kids and my grandkids. Thank you for my wife. Thank you, Lord, for Canada. Thank you that I have a home, a car to drive. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you're with us. You will never leave us, forsake us. And Lord, today, where those among us are struggling with anxiety or depression, oh God, would you bring hope and peace and joy as we practice these truths that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.